What's up, everybody? My name is James D. Fiore, and this is Blackballed. We have a Blackballed doubleheader tonight, and I am calling it unofficially the Blackballed doubleheader of tough-ass women, um, because we have two tough-ass women on tonight. My first guest, I don't know if you guys recall what it was like growing up in the 80s and 90s in Canada but much music was like brand new um, 1984 maybe or something maybe it was early I can't remember and there were certain artists that were cycled through the playlist and you just became fans not just because they were there but because the music was so good and you wanted to understand what music videos were especially when you were young I was born in 1976, so I was like into music when I was like eight, nine, ten. I was really getting into it. And certain artists stuck out. When I was really young, um, grade four, I was like listening to Twisted Sister and like Wasp and Judas Priest and all these like rock bands. And then I got into hip hop. But there were a few artists that remained with me. So I wasn't like a hip hop snob and I, I brought them along and I wanted to be a little bit more eclectic than just a one genre guy. And my guest today was one of those artists. And full disclosure, I was probably one of those kids that was raised by a patriarchal society of sorts, where it was a juxtaposition for a guy like me to see a woman tear the shit out of a stage and just leave the crowd breathless and my guest today is one of those people and her name is lee aaron lee how are you hello hello i was just turning my music or the volume down here because the music the background music was so loud it was oh was it maybe it's too loud maybe my levels are off i'm sorry about that (laughs) look i'm not like we we, we started and i'm already Uh, getting music advice from lee aaron how are you good how are you doing i'm doing well um I want to start off with a little bit something different because I don't think a lot of people um, might not know right off the top of their heads. Fans of you will certainly know. But the eclectic range that you have as an artist, I was kind of wondering what your first love was because I know that you are obviously, um, people describe you sometimes as like the first lady of Canadian rock and all that kind of stuff. You're a rock legend. You're rock royalty basically in this country. (laughs) <laughs> and and the UK, I think, like the, you, you have an interesting relationship with the UK, and we'll get to that in a bit. But jazz and opera. What is your first love? Like, what 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 did you? What was what what drew you to music first? And can you give me a little bit of a glimpse of how you got into the other genres as well? That is like such a massive scope kind of question. That's <laughs> right. Saying. Welcome to Blackbolt. Um, <laughs> so. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I I grew up um, in a family where my parents did not really have um, very broad music tastes. Um, you know, my my uh, I think the coolest record 
my mom had was Diana Ross and the Supremes. My yeah. dad liked um, Johnny Cash and Merle Haggard. Johnny Cash was cool. I mean, you know, and Merle Haggard really, but it was, it was pretty diverse. My, my mom like loved Barbara Streisand and Ann Murray. And, you know, I was a kid growing up in the seventies. And um, so I wasn't really exposed to a whole lot. Um, then I, when I was in school, I got involved in theater um, and took a few vocal lessons when I was really young. And I remember my very first, uh, my vocal teacher when I was like 14 gave me this Bette Midler record with a bunch of old mm. jazz tunes on it. Um, and uh, throughout high school, my exposure through theater was largely musical theater pieces, like vintage musical theater pieces and sort of the Tin Pan Alley writers, Rogers and Hart, that kind of stuff. So I kind of grew up singing jazz and Broadway kind of stuff. Wow. And then I got discovered by a bass player in a local band who went to my high school, asked me to come and audition for this, this band that he was in, um, a rock band. And I, I had like, no rock was sort of not really in my wheelhouse at all, but I, I did this audition because he had seen me in a local, like a theater production and thought I had a really powerful voice. And then I auditioned for the band and um, basically uh, of all the singers they auditioned, I had the best voice. So I ended up getting this gig. And then suddenly I was thrown into this world of like, will you learn, uh, you know, they wanted me to, I remember my first guitar player wanted me to learn Ted Nugent and stuff like that. And I was, wow. I was like, okay, well, and then I was like, I better find some female rock stuff and sort of um, circumstantially at the same time, my mom and dad both worked at a local college. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, my father walked into work one day and he was walking down the hallway and the college radio station they had a bunch of piles of vinyl just lined up in the hallway because they decided they were going to switch formats and, be, and go to eight track and they oh, were getting wow. vinyl. It was just like, yeah, like hindsight like is so funny between that and Ted Nugent. You're like, what the hell? I know. <laughs> so, um, but so right around simultaneous to this time, my dad, he's like, oh, my daughter loves music. Right. And he just grabbed all this vinyl. He threw it in his trunk and he showed up and he had, all this vinyl. And I was just like, wow. So it was like, this was like a world of discovery for me. It was like, okay. Uh, in that vinyl, I found Bowie, Steely Dan, Rush, the Straubs. Um, uh, uh, what else? Heart, the Runaways, my, uh, Elton John, the Yellow Brick Road album, which became like one of my, you know, favorite albums of my youth. Um, I can't even remember all of the artists that were in that pile, but this was just my, like, I was just eating it up like crazy. And um, so then, I, then I was going to the guys in the band going, Hey, let's do some Joplin. Let's do a Runaways song. Let's mm. do art. Let's do some female rock stuff. Um, and so that's kind of how it evolved for me. Yeah. Um, and then down the road. Um, so when I when I switched in the the the, the late uh, '90s and started singing jazz for I did this little um, tenure doing jazz, it wasn't like it was completely new to me. I had already sang this kind of music because most of the reviews when I was you know uh, either in clubs or or doing festivals and 
the local media came and saw me, they were like, wow, this is like surprisingly authentic coming from mm. that we only know to be a rock singer, right? Um, and, and, you know, there were a couple of reasons why I did that diversion into jazz and blues at that time was um, obviously in the mid 90s, grunge just came in the way punk came in and killed disco. Yeah. And it pretty much annihilated everybody's career who was <laughs> of that whole classic rock world, right? Um, so... Uh, we, well, we, we, sorry, if I may interject for a second, because as a, as a consumer of music, we, we kind of knew that happened. But what was that like um, for the artists whose careers were kind of like sidelined because of grunge? Like, what was it like? Were you guys, was it like you guys were scrambling to try to figure out, you know, how to find another niche? Or were, were there artists um, other than yourself that were like, well, let's just try grunge? Like, like, how did that affect the careers of people behind the scenes? Well, I know that for some people it just killed their career. Hmm. I, when grunge really, really happened, just right around 91, 92, I had just put out Some Girls Do. I was 29 years old and I was kind of like, wait a minute, I'm still in my 20s. I'm like not even, I've barely got started here. I'm depressed. Like, I can be depressed, <laughs> right? And so I... And, and, you know, to be honest, I started so young, and I've said this a few times, I started so young. I went on the road when I was 18 years old. I was fresh out wow. of high school. I feel like I kind of missed a little part of my youth there for a bit because I was instantly working full time. Like I, and I mean, we were doing clubs. So I was doing six nights a week, four sets a night. And so when grunge happened, I felt like I was re-experiencing my late teenage years. I was like, this music's really cool. I like it. So I kind of, I really embraced it. I, I really, I loved Pearl Jam. I loved Green Day. I loved Nirvana. I loved Soundgarden. And so I'm like, I'm just going to take this sound and kind of incorporate it into what I'm doing because to me, it's just modern rock. And yeah. I'm still just, I, I was like, to me, I was still a young rock artist. And so in 94, I did Emotional Rain, and I had Reeves Gabrels from David Bowie's Tim Machine play on that album. And I had um, uh, Knox Chandler from the Psychedelic Furs. I brought him up. And um, mm. so Emotional Rain had definitely had grungy overtones to it. Yeah. Um, and oh, yeah. And I worked with the rhythm section from Vancouver's Sons of Freedom. It was a Canadian band oh, that was yeah. uh, like, you know, a seminal band in that that. To the, the alternative scene on the West Coast. And I, I loved their band and I brought them in, into Toronto to record my album because I thought the rhythm section was amazing. And I'm like, I'm just going to embrace this. But what I failed to understand when I was younger, now that I'm older, I get it, that music is, can be super cyclical. And mm. you fall in and you fall out of pop culture and in and out of fashion, like many things do. And at that time, it was just in the whole pop culture ethos, it was not fashionable to be Learen. It was just like, <laughs> you're a rock chick and you are one dimensional and we're not gonna accept you doing anything else. So Emotional Rain, many people tell me it's their favorite album now, many Learen fans, but it did not sell the way my other albums did because I just could not get the, um, the backbone of promotion and the media behind it. Uh. Um, you yeah, know, I, so I, yeah, go ahead. Part. And then I and then I was just like, screw it. 
The guys in the Sons of Freedom said, we love working with you. We think you have a great voice. We think you're a great songwriter. Why don't you just come to the West Coast and just do a record, an art record with us? And I was just mm -hmm. like, yeah, screw it. That's what I'm yeah. going to do. I sold my house. I sold everything pretty much. But I had a suitcase, my guitar, my amp, and my little keyboard. And I drove to the West Coast. And then I made this record in 95 um, called Too Precious with the guys in Sons of Freedom. And it's um it's out of print now so it's kind of a collector's item but oh, wow. i honestly think that that record is some of my most interesting work you know and it is it's a full-on grunge record full-on alternative um i explored a lot of darker themes on that album but yeah. then when that was highly unsuccessful oh someone says belleville hi belleville <laughs> i was born in belleville uh. Oh, we're talking about stalkers. I see these. these uh, yeah, no, there's a guy that, that, well, I put it up before, but I mean, he, it sounded like a nice message to me. I think that someone was just joking. Um, anyway, but yeah. um, so uh, like I said, your question's kind of loaded because it goes through so much history for me. Yeah. But, too precious, but it's a gr great answer, couldn't though. Get of, couldn't get out of the <laughs> gate either because the moment, um, an interesting story, and I've told this before, we um, hired a promotions guy named, uh, Bobby Gale out of uh, Toronto to promote promote that album. He loved the Two Precious record. He was so excited. So he just kept taking it around to stations and teasing them with, you know, like the first single was a song called Super Bitch. <laughs> you nice. know, um, to make a long story short, CFNY, which was one of the biggest alternative alt stations in Toronto, was so excited. And he wouldn't tell them who the singer was. He said, it's a super group with the Sons of Freedom someone else and they were making all these guesses like oh is it juliana hatfield is it pj harvey is it this person that Joan when, Jeff, he said, yeah. when he said lee aaron they're like oh we oh. can't play that and it was just it was perception right and yeah. that that just gutted me i was just like man like that was really harsh and that is when i just went fuck it pardon me am i allowed to say that Oh, so, fuck. Yeah. You're allowed to swear. Yeah. You know, I took a year off, licked my wounds, listened to all my old Nina Simone records. Hmm. And when I decided I was going to sing again, I was just going to, I'm just like, I'm just going to sing. I'm just going to get a piano player and go sing some lounge stuff just because it would be fun. And See, I, I love that. I've just, I've made some interesting choices in my life that were not always money or commercially motivated. Um, you know, and singing jazz and blues was not at all. It wasn't a huge money maker for me, but I thought, you know, this music makes me feel filled up, and it also got me very interested that year in exploring the roots of rock and roll because you know mm. Zeppelin stole from all these guys, right? Yeah. In the beginning, yeah. all right. you know, Willie Dixon and so did Elvis, right? And, yeah. yeah, well, El Elvis was not really stealing he was doing it <laughs> for real right yeah um, and um so yeah i felt like it was kind of an exploration into the history of rock and roll it was it was uh and then i did it for a little bit got some great reviews and people were like you should record this and so then i ended up doing the slick chick record in 2000 and is uh, that the one where you and sorry like i i, I don't keep notes in front of me because i find them distracting but um what is the performance that you did on the roof of the senator 
That was jazz and blues. That was jazz and blues. Okay. Cause I, I, uh, yeah. Cause the, I, I saw some interview where people were like floored and then, and, and it was really unique where the performance was and the, and you know, the people that was there and the way that the sound ricocheted off nearby buildings. I'm like, I heard like it was, it was kind of magical. I don't know if you have the same memory well, of that, but the top of the, just so you're, you're clear, the top of the Senator is actually not a rooftop. It's a club oh. in Toronto. It's a very famous jazz venue called okay. the top of the Senator. It is at the top floor of a building. Okay. Um, I, I added the rooftop in. I didn't read that. I added that in. Cause I just, did, no, but it did is deductive a really reasoning, and I was sounding. totally wrong. Yeah, it's a really unique sounding room, and it's that's why people love to play there. Okay. Um, and yeah, I did. I got like a stunning review in the Globe and Mail, which I'm not trying to pat myself on the back. Please, here, but, you know, I think they, you should. I think you should be there. Is a there is a um, th you said something earlier about how like Lee Aaron is out of fashion. And it reminded me of a quote that someone told me, I don't remember who it was, but that fashion and music are, are the two industries where the industry itself dictates the taste. And I often found that the, the gatekeepers of the music industry in many genres, um, I'm thinking of like rock and hip hop mostly, they did not do any service to the artists that were making music a lot of the times, especially in the 90s, because people would try to um they would call it reinventing themselves and i think a lot of artists and i would probably throw you into this mix we're really just growing and evolving you know like the, the whole idea of reinventing yourself sounds fake it, but but when but the way that you just put it it sounds like you were you were just growing you're obviously not going to be the same artist in 1982 as you are in 1995 right and I'm curious if there is um, sometimes in hindsight a frustration towards the business side of music because of things like that. Well, first let me quantify um, what you're, you're saying there. Um, and maybe we have slightly different opinions. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, of course I'm always, I feel like I'm always growing and evolving, um, but I don't see a, dang thing wrong with reinvention <laughs> i just like i really don't um david it's Bowie, always authentic right yeah like, Bowie did it over and over again it's you know it doesn't really matter you can do that through any genre of music i think you know bowie was rock and roll but it was always it always sounded like bowie because of his voice but you know it always it was always a bit different i mean the the rolling stones even i mean they you know in that when Disco was popular. They did miss you. You know, it still sounded like the yeah. Stones, but they, 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 they were listening to current music and they were kind of stealing from the current sounds that they were hearing. And I don't see anything wrong with that. That's what art is supposed to be about. Art is supposed to reflect culture and what, you know, we're seeing and hearing and absorbing. And, um, you know, you know, when I you actually think we're saying the same thing, um, yeah, and no. the terminology yeah. and the terminology is just different. Um, what I was referring to are, are when 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 producers and uh, you know A and R guys and label people would try to get you out of a comfort zone so you could sound more like that, and, and that and, and and not in a way that the artist feels good about doing it, but just because you want to sell records. I'll give you an example that isn't music related, but it's still related to Lee Aaron, which is when. Um, the reaction that you had to when you posed on the cover of we magazine and you felt pressure from your manager to do it. And it was a regret. I'm thinking of more of things like that. Like, like you stepped out of your comfort zone to do something that was kind of at the time, I believe if I'm recalling correctly, you in hindsight, you weren't really comfortable doing. Is that fair? Oh yeah. 
100%. Yeah. Um, I'm not showing the picture or anything. Don't worry. But I'm just, I'm just. No, it's, and yeah. I, I mean, I've said many times before, I don't even, it's, it's painful for, to, for me to even talk about still today. Oh, I'm it, sorry. I didn't was, realize. Oh, you know, it, it was, cause it was, I was a, I was a kid. I was uh, taken to New York on a plane when I was 19 years old. I didn't even really completely understand what was going on. And I was thrown into this situation, but what I could say, um, uh, just which speaks to that, is that here's an example: when we, in the '80s, when um, we would be making another record, because the cycle was record, put out an album, tour, take off a few months, you know, tour for a year or nine months, then take off a few months and be on your publishing retainer while you're doing your writing for the next record, then record, then put out the album, then tour. It was like, it was like the mm -hmm. hamster wheel, right? Um, when we were on publishing retainer and we would be writing songs for the next record, um, quite often, well, we would be told every three weeks to a month, we would have to come in to the label and we would have to play them the demos, you know, okay, you guys have been collecting publishing retainer for a month, show us what work you've done. And we, myself and John Albany, my co-writer at the time would go into the label and we would play them, you know, six, seven songs that we'd written and they would go, hmm, hmm, you know, the suits and ties. We like this, we like that. And then they would go, hmm. And then they would go play us like a Night Ranger song that was really popular. But can you write something more like this? Or they'd play us a Bon Jovi tune that was a big hit. Can you write like, so at that time, you know, investing um, in your album. So they want, they want guaranteed success. Everybody that is, you know, the, the record labels were pouring a half a million dollars into projects at that time. Fair enough. But it wasn't conducive to artistry at all. It was like they wanted a guaranteed hit. Can you write a song that sounds like this one? Because if it sounds like this one, it on the radio. And then John and I would go back and we'd go like, we'd, we'd beat our heads against the wall trying to like write some pulp that wasn't really authentically us. And then That's we'd write, what we're talking about, yeah. The way it would go is when we were really enthused about making a new album, the first couple of months of writing, we'd come up with a bunch of original stuff that we liked. Then we'd get all confused by the influence of the label and what they wanted us to do. And then we'd write a bunch of crap for like, <laughs> for like six months. And then at the end, we'd go, screw it. This is so not working. And then we would just write a bunch of songs that we wanted to write. And sure enough, almost every time, the first crop of songs we wrote and the last crop of songs we wrote would end up on the album you know yeah um I, I between hi i'm steve yurko and i'm tara sands now available from maji media is our new podcast four kids flashback four kids is the company who brought you the english dub of pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at 4Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. 
there's like an urban legend of um like because sometimes they get it right there's an urban legend i heard i don't know if this is true or not but it's an interesting story about how radiohead um creep was a sound check song <laughs> and and just a sound check song yeah this is what i heard i i i kind of hope it's true i've been hearing this story i don't know man like for like 25 years or something and and i think i thought it was the greatest story because apparently they hated the song and they just used it for sound check because it was quiet and loud and they'd be able to get the levels proper and then um some anr guy was like you guys gotta fucking like that that's a great song and then it became like basically one of their greatest singles so it's weird. I guess it's hard to know who to trust, I guess, when you're the artist, because you're standing in front of these professionals. Granted, they're wearing suits. They're probably they probably can't carry a tune. But but I guess they kind of know what's sold in the way. Is it is there is there a sort of a constant uh, thirst or or craving to sort of be the pioneer of a sound that other A&Rs tell their bands to copy? Like, is that where is your mind at when you're making these albums and and. I mean, I'm sure it's different all the time. I'm sorry for my big scope questions, but uh, I like to freestyle these questions. But you know what I'm saying? Like, it, it, was that ever a goal to be the 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 kind of we want to be the band that puts out a single that that A and R guy will tell that band to try to emulate so they can make money too? Like, is there ever a thought like that? I love okay. the dramatic pause. The dramatic <laughs> pause is killing me. <laughs> I'm going to freestyle that answer for yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, good. Dude, I please. don't really completely understand the question. <laughs> so I'm just asking. So, I'm just. I'm just asking. If I, like, do I ever hope that I will write a song that somebody, another A and R guy, will tell somebody to write a song like? You're right. It is a convoluted well, question. So, you're right. <laughs> so there's an artist out. Here's a funny story. I'll please. tell you a funny story. Okay. Good. So Elevate has gotten some brilliant reviews so far. Not everybody loves it because not everybody is always going to love your stuff, right? Um, there is a magazine out of England called Classic Rock. You're familiar with it, of course. There's a new artist. Her name is Shay Kane. C-H-E-Z-K-A-N-E. Shay Kane. And she's got a this, this Swedish guy from this band called Crazy Licks who's written her songs with her and produced her. And their whole thing is let's be like Lee Aaron from the 80s. Oh, sorry. That's it's my okay. dad calling. I got to turn my ringer oh, on. You can put him on <laughs> if you want. Put him on. I don't care. <laughs> so, because I played a show in France recently and Crazy Licks was opening up for me. And he came to me and he told me, yeah, I'm working with this artist and we're trying to be just like you. And I was like, oh, that's kind of nice. Well, yeah. Classic Rock loves her. And they've given her like three features in the last three issues. Okay. <laughs> They're, she's trying to be like Lear. And, and then I put out my, I, I, my album for review and they trashed it. <laughs> so, so, but you know what that tells me? That tells me I'm not predictable and I'm making good art. So screw yeah. you guys. That's yeah, right. And, and that's what I think, you know. They, well, thank um, you for saving the question because that was exactly what I was hoping for. <laughs> so she's trying to emulate the Lee Aaron that was, mm. but not the Lee Aaron that's evolving. And well, the Lee Aaron, the Lee Aaron that was, um, like you've gone through incarnations. This is Rocker Lee Aaron. I don't know. Um, this might be the the picture, by the way, that I got caught kissing when I was 11 years old. My sister walked in the bedroom. I'm not sure, but it might have been. Can I tell everybody James DeFiore kiss, kisses my ass? That's, yeah. Um, 
I'd be happy to. Um, <laughs> but then we then we have Elevate. Yeah. Um, first of all, can I just say, um, you're timeless. Like, like I, I don't know what your secret is. I don't really care. You look beautiful. And I don't, you know, I, I, it's amazing to me how some people, it's actually kind of pisses me off a little bit too, because <laughs> some people look good for like years and years and years. And, um, and then I always sort of feel like the guilty male when I, when I think that, because, you know, I, I, you know, women have such a hard kind of time in, in society because of looks and everything as it is. And I'm trying my best to be polite, but like, you know, like you're a beautiful woman and you know, you, you were, you were doing um, crazy shows when like all throughout your career and you know, and now that you're putting out this album now, I like it that you said, like, I don't give a fuck. I, I just want to put out art. Where did you find yourself maturing as an artist where you decided that um, that you weren't going to try to like put out stuff for the industry anymore? And, and you were just going to like just put your head down and just get on with it and just do what you felt like. Probably, um, yeah, hmm. probably in the early 90s, um, mm. I parted ways with Attic Records. And again, it was a very amicable split. They they were going in a different direction than, than myself. And they were talking about merging the company and doing making a bunch of like corporate moves that I felt that I maybe couldn't be a part of, nor did they feel that I should be coming along. So I, I became an independent artist in 92. And okay. that's when I made that more alternative sounding record in 94. Then I made a complete alternative grungy record in 95. And then I did my whole thing with jazz and blues for a little while. Then I took a part in an opera. And I, I mean, pretty much from that point forward, I was just like, I'm going to march to my own drum. I'm going to do things my own way. And, um, and then many people ask me like, where did you go? Where did you go for years and years? Well, I met my husband in 2000 and we had our first child into, I, I actually put out another album called beautiful things in 2004. Mm -hmm. And I toured six months pregnant. I toured wow. up until I literally couldn't get on a plane anymore. Um, and um, at that point in time, I took, I probably a, a 12 year hiatus to raise our children. Nice. Um, I didn't want them to be messed up when they were adults because their mommy was never around and paying attention to them. I did do isolated live shows, but I didn't, I didn't write an album because that it takes an intense amount of, it's like writing a book, you know, it's, it takes an intense amount of focused energy and all of my creative energy was going into raising little people. I had, we had our son in 2006 and, um, and I mean, so how do I explain it? Everything in my life just sort of plays more into me marching to my own beat, you know, having just becoming a parent, um, you know, you have these little humans and you realize this is the most important thing that you're, you're doing in your life. And so what do I want my legacy with them to be? I want that. I want them to respect me. I want to leave a legacy of art for them. Um, I don't want to, how do I explain it? Um, I don't want to be compromising in my yeah. life anymore. 
I think that's brave. That's pretty brave. And and it's and it's like you're a good mom then because it's it's selfless. Um, and you you understood that you wanted to raise your kids properly. I'm very curious though. The child that was in utero when you were on tour are they the really artistic one? I'm just curious. I wonder if there's any cause and effect there. You know. Well, oh God, that's my doorbell. I don't know. Oh, go get it. And whoever it is, just let him in. <laughs> my husband can get it. Don't worry okay. about it. <laughs> um, um, well, my kids are both creative um, mm-hmm. in different ways. So our daughter, who is the oldest um, and who was, yeah, in utero when I was out singing and doing stuff, she is studying right now at Capilano University. She had to audition against about 500 kids from all over the world to get into this intensive musical theater program. And she got in, there's 20 kids in that program. She's incredibly talented. And I, and it's it's genetic. She's never allowed me to show her, give her a voice lesson or anything. She's, she is. You brought her on the road. You brought her on the road. That was, (laughs) honestly, I don't know. I don't know anything about anything, but like that seems to me like there might be some cause and effect there. You know, like if you put bad things inside your body when you're pregnant, that's that that has an effect. So if you put good sounding things, all I don't know. It it sounds to me like that there might have been some sort of accidental blessing there when you brought her on the road when she was in utero. Is is it neat seeing your offspring? Because my kids are eight and six. Um, I'm just starting to see my older one now uh, become um, artistic. Where I'm like, wow, that that was really good actually. And and I can't tell if I'm just being a doubting daddy or not. But um, how proud are you as as an actual as an accomplished you know famous artist watching your offspring sort of carry that torch a little bit in their own way? Oh, just I can't even describe it. I, I'll give you an example. Like hmm. now, I've I've heard her sing quite a few times, and um, I, I'm quite aware of how gifted she is. But she was with a musical theater company. She's always been involved in a musical theater company outside of school as well. Since she was about eight years old, she just it was her wheelhouse. She loved it. And um, when she was 12 years old, she finally got her first lead. And she played Belle in Beauty and the Beast, oh, wow. the production of Beauty and the Beast. And um, she would go downstairs and she would lock the door and she didn't want us to hear her practicing. And we're like, we're like, okay, I guess the first time we're actually going to see her sing lead in something is in this production. And when she got on stage as Belle, like her, her dad and I were both just kind of like shaking our head and looking at each other. Like, how did she just get so good? Like, like your children just suddenly at one point in time, just surprise you when you just go like, I didn't teach them that. How did they learn that? They're just, they are their own people. And she was so, so incredibly good. She was we're going like her pitch is perfect. Her intonation is perfect. Like, how did she even learn that? We were just blown away. And I remember that that was the first time where I felt like my heart was just going to explode. Oh, I'd be bra- I'd be bawling. I would have yeah. cried my ass off. Yeah. I, with happiness. And then when we were outside picking her up at the stage door with some flowers, some little girls that had seen the performance. I mean, these are just local kids in our community. They were running after her. They're going, Oh, there's Belle. There's Belle. Let's see if we can talk to her. And I'm like, wow, her first little taste of what it feels like to be famous at 12, you know, like it was, it was really neat. It was really neat, but yeah, we're incredibly proud of her. We're incredibly proud of our son too. He's teaching, he's self-taught. He's teaching himself to play guitar. Um, He loves punk rock. 
<laughs> oh, there you go. He, he loves Billy Joe Armstrong and Green Day. That's his favorite band. And uh, that's kind of the path he's going down. And so go figure. Like she's going to end up probably, you know, at the Queenie and some type of musical theater performance when she graduates. And who knows? Maybe he'll start his own band. That's great. I, I don't know. It's just great to have that. That I mean, I'd be, I, I wouldn't, I would never say it out loud, but there'd be a part of me that'd be like, genetics, <laughs> you know. Well, yeah, I mean, your dad yeah. is a great rhythm. He's a drummer as well, so yeah, you never yeah. know. They got music on both sides, right? So <laughs> yeah. Um. So the album uh, comes out on this Friday. Actually, it was a perfect time to have you. I, I uh, reached out to your your people or whatever uh, about a week and a half ago, and I'm so glad that you were able to make the time. We have to wrap soon. Um. I think that yeah. you have to go soon as well. Uh, where are, are you touring? Um. Outside of Canada, North America, for this one. Oh, you know what? Before you answer that, I wanted to ask you why it was, because I've only heard this with one other band. And it was um, it was a hip hop band, uh, Dream Warriors, where their first album that came out was released overseas in the UK, but not domestically. Can you just sort of tell me? I was going to ask you that at the beginning, but I forgot. Can you tell me why that happened and how that happened? So, yeah, I can speak a lot to that because I've um, done done my own business stuff um, for the last twenty plus years. And it's, it's a, it's a challenge. I'm always trying to wrestle a better business model for myself personally. Um, so my, my model is to have complete artistic control, finance my own records, my own recordings, make them do the photography. Like basically before an album is released of Learen, the music, the mastering, the artwork, everything is done first. Hmm. Um, so when you see that cover, the label has had no influence. That is just all us, the band. Okay. Um, now, then I get a licensing. I try to find a licensing deal. Now, my li- my li- my label and my distributor is out of Germany. Hmm. And that is why my album is coming out on, well, they told me the 28th. Now I'm hearing the 25th. Um, pre-sales of the disc cds sold out instantly they i think they pressed a couple thousand they sold out instantly so they never even got shipped to north america that's why you can't buy them on amazon.ca right now you can't get my cd but you can get the vinyl because the vinyls is in the warehouse can we get the a track that's 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 the magic it's, it's kind of complicated so what i can tell you is that that band what evidently happened is that they signed a, a, a UK record deal that did not have distribution in other territories. Oh, interesting. So it came out in England, but to get it, you had to buy it as an import probably and have it shipped. So my first few albums were released in Canada. I had signed a worldwide deal with Attic Records. They came out in Canada and they had partners. So they they signed the, the late, I had a worldwide deal with Attic Records. <clears throat> So that meant that I was signed directly to Attic, but I could not sign a U.S. record deal. I couldn't sign a record deal any in any other territories, but Attic could sign on my behalf for oh. distribution. So they, so this is my history, right? Yeah. Attic signed, um, you know, would sign a deal with, you know, for distribution in, they called it the Benelux, which is Austria, uh, uh, the gas territories, right? Mm-hmm. Germany, Austria, Switzerland. Yep. So you get that territory, then you'd get you know, the Netherlands and, and Belgium and, and um, 
so they would get different partners for distribution in different territories. And then it would be like, the album would be out six months. Then they would call me. They go, oh, by the way, you're going to get released in Australia because they just signed a deal for Australia. And then I get released in Australia. Part of this curse of some Canadian acts um, was that we were never able to get proper distribution in the U.S. Because if you signed a deal in Canada, direct signing, especially if you were on a major like Sony or BMG or something like that, A&R guys back in the day had as big of egos as, as the guys in the bands. Oh, They'd go, well, not my signing. It's not my signing. So I'd, I'm not going to promote it in the States. I didn't discover it. And so they might get distribution in the States, but there was no push behind. Right. The and so there's a, there were a lot of politics at play back then. And even today, you know, um, again, I have a worldwide distribution agreement out of Germany because I couldn't find a Canadian model that would work well, was we're going to yeah. work well. If does that make sense? And the that Germans makes total loved, sense. And, absolutely yeah. loved, loved, loved the music. You want to be signed. You want to be with a label that loves your music, right? Um, we're a global so, village now anyway. So it does. I mean, you know, I yeah. don't think people care too much about the border when it comes to music, right? Well, and you can get stuff shipped anywhere in the world now because of platforms like Amazon and Best Buy and various mm. things. Um, it's just a matter of people complain about shipping, you know? So, yeah. <laughs> well, so. um, congratulations on the album coming out again. Uh, we think it's coming out uh, November 25th. It is called elevate. Um, and as the, uh, as the official Lee Aaron ass kisser, I must say that I'll be picking up that album as well. I really appreciate you coming on today. It's, it's honestly a big thrill for me. And, um, you know, all kidding aside, um, I, I really, uh, since I was young and now, I think that your music is great and I'm really happy that you're still going on um, and, and making new music and, uh, and well done. So thank you very much. Uh, well, thank you very much for having me, James. It was a pleasure to talk to you and uh, it was a great conversation. You asked some really interesting questions that got me digging. <laughs> thank, you, thank you for saving me for the convo from the convoluted <laughs> questions that I asked. I appreciate it. You have a good night. Thank you. All right. Take care, James. All right. Take care. She's really nice. I'm so happy about that. Um, and not that I thought that she wouldn't be, but uh, yeah, that was great. Uh, I, I enjoy talking to Canadian artists, um, A, because they're down to earth, and B, because, you know, there, there's there's no fronts. And because of the style of delivery that I like to have during interviews, I, I, I don't like to write down questions and be like, for your first album, you remember, like, I, I just find that really boring. In fact, uh, I will say this, um, doing my Lee Aaron deep dive, um, over the last week or so I was bored watching her interviews and it had nothing to do with her. It, it had everything to do with the ridiculous questions that uh, people were asking her. So I'm glad we got to get to know her. I hope you guys enjoyed that. Uh, coming up in 45 minutes, the back end of the blackballed tough ass woman double header Wednesday, which is something I just fucking made up. Karima Saad who has had an extraordinary last few days dealing with the people who are supposed to be the gatekeepers of, I guess, unity and anti-hate, but who, and we've known this, people who have followed the Dean Blundell show and have listened to Karima over the last year or so, have organization may have a name.
that makes people shy away from criticizing them, which, by the way, is a grift. And I don't know if you notice, but it, it, let's just take two things. The Canadian Anti-Hate Network and Antifa. When people start to, like, break down, um, you know, the, the or- organizations that have names that you can't argue with in a literal sense. What, you like fascists? No, I don't. But I think Antifa are a bunch of fucking squeegee kid methods. So I don't have to like Antifa. So you like fascists. They're anti-fascists. So you, if you don't like them, you like fascists, which is probably one of the most ridiculous, insane arguments I've ever heard. And this Canadian anti-hate network, much of the same. Well, you, you like racism? No. Well, they're the anti-racism group. They're a bunch of fucking idiots. And they are... Um, what do you call it? Uh, provocateurs in a lot of ways. They're like they're like social justice vandals. Where I think what happens is, and their leader Bernie Farber, who by the way gets paid like he did, I think it was ten one-hour anti-racism courses for like some company, or maybe it was even a government. Um, I'll I'll I'll, I'll have these uh, facts in front of me when I when I have Cream on later, but. It's paid like 40 grand to do 10 one hour sessions of how to not be a racist. And it's like, it is a grift. Okay. The Canadian anti-hate network, the best thing about them is their name. As soon as you look under the hood, it's just a bunch of charlatans and grifters who found their like who, who found a way to get to a spot where they could make money preaching about shit but then not actually embodying the thing that they're preaching against. And um, I find it gross. And I'm so happy that uh, Karima is going to join us in about 45 minutes so that she can talk to uh, about this because Karima is one of these special people that, um, that I find myself gravitating towards where, you know, she's obviously um, she, she has progressive leanings, but she is aware enough, even in the social media age, that just because someone calls himself a progressive doesn't mean that they're not hateful. And it doesn't mean that they're not damaging to society as a whole. And a lot of progressives, especially the ones who are active in activism and social justice, they cannot separate themselves from that fact. What they will do is if you don't agree with us, fuck you, you're a fascist. And sometimes they're talking to people who are like Karima, who is clearly not, not a fascist. Um, but anyways, I will have a lot more to talk about that when Karima comes on. So stay tuned for that. That is at 8.30, which will be the next time that I see you on Black Ball. Black Roger and I host a leadership show called The Boiling Point with my co-host Dave Vale. Together, we sit down with trailblazing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers who are driving meaningful change in our world. 
The show is all about exploring the lives and perspectives of leaders who are making a difference. Join us for insightful conversations that challenge the status quo, spark new ideas, and inspire you to take action. Find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or at BoilingPointPodcast.com. Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Cryer Media Network.